Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Faisal. How about you? I'm good. What an interesting week in the markets. Nice jump yep. uh, this month so far. Nice jump in uh, November. So people are kind of feeling good, even though there's snow on the ground and it's cold and so forth. But we've got a very interesting show. We'll definitely talk about what's happening in the markets and 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 why we're seeing what we're seeing. Um but there's been a, a report that was put out by the um, Canadian Housing Mortgage Corporation, yeah, Canadian CMHC. Mortgage Housing Corporation, yep. CMHC, and uh, talking about the trends and that what used to be is not what is. And right. what I mean by that is what used to be about about uh, seniors are going to downsize at some point. That's kind of shifted. That's kind of contributing to the the lack of supply in the housing market mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of caught people by surprise because guess what? These individuals have changed their behavior from the previous generations. So right. yeah, they things have. are different. What are the implications of that? We'll talk about that. Let's talk about implications. We saw a great uh, November in the, in the stock market. Mm -hmm. uh, the bond market looked pretty good for the month of November as yep. well. We're seeing a pretty good uh, first few, uh, first week or so into December. And it feels like better sentiments coming out from at least the markets. Well, what's changed? Is, so there's a bunch of interesting stuff this week. Bank of Canada rate decision. Not, that's not the interesting part. But their guidance around excess demand no longer exists in the economy. That's interesting. We get a Fed rate decision next week. We'll see what you know. We'll see what they say. We do have bond markets starting to pretty aggressively price in rate cuts next week. Or sorry, uh, next year. How accurate is that? Let's, we can talk about that one. I wrote down, uh, you know, the U.S. jobs picture. The news cycle was dominated, at least in our world, by what the U.S. labor picture looks like this week. Mm -hmm. um, and as usual, there's kind of a there's a mixed bag. So let's just pick one and run with it. What do you what do you want to run with? Let's let's <clears throat> let's talk about you know, let's talk about the job side, which will lead to the, also the the bond market and what it's pricing in regards to rate cuts, because we're hearing more and more from an average citizen yep. saying, oh, they're going to cut rates next year. Right. They're actually predicting that themselves, right. right? And so what was interesting about how people think about jobs, and let's just focus on the U.S. right now, because that's where the attention is. Jobs numbers were better than expected. Yes? Um, yes. Headline number better than Headline expected. Headline better. Unemployment rate went the wrong direction for if you want to see a slowdown in the economy. Right. Yes? Yes. And so the market reacted to that saying, uh oh Well, the futures market, when it hit, the headline took futures markets negative. Correct. The bond market reacted, uh oh Well, people forgot just a few days before that mm -hmm. that the outstanding number of jobs that are still out there mm -hmm. available was down by almost 1 million from the peak. So about 8 million jobs outstanding available in the United States at this point in time. It was closer to nine just not too long ago. And so we got to think about as if you're a business owner. Yep. Do you just cut staff or do you cut out the opportunity for hiring first? Right. For growth and in additional employees, yeah. And so what the market or what we're hearing from, from people are saying, oh my God, jobs is not moving in the right direction, which means we're not losing jobs. We're actually gaining jobs. This is terrible. This is not going to go towards, it's going to raise interest rates. We're going to have higher inflation. And they go into that extreme thought, right? You need to have less jobs available before you start cutting. Right. And, and the other part that we haven't spoken about was the, so it's inflation is the issue, right? So what the Fed is concerned about is if the labor market stays strong, wage inflation stays strong or goes higher. 
Well, the inflation number in that report was right on as expected at 4%. In the previous month's data was revised down. Wage inflation was revised down. And so when I was reporting on this data this week, you know, the Goldilocks scenario is if inflation continues to trend lower and everybody that wants and wants a job has a job, that means no recession. And so the market, you know, it was interesting to watch that first two hours of trading as it often is because the market was trying to figure out, is this good news or bad news, yeah. right? Because it's a mixed bag. Here's what I think is not, a lot of attention is not being played <laughs> on yet, is productivity of the average American. Right. Okay, if productivity of the average American can go up, you can pay them more, but hire less people. Right, and inflation can go down. And then inflation goes down, exactly. Right. So look at that productivity number. Right. With newer technology, and I know AI is all the buzz right now, right. a couple of companies, and I'll pick on one, Shopify, yep. announced that they did a million lines of code using AI. Right. You want to see the productivity of that company just go up right there? Right. They don't have to hire that many people to do that kind of work. Right. So technology will make the individual more, more productive as it has in the past. And if that's the case, you can still pay them more. Right. You don't have to hire as many. And you can still sell more or have more, more, more revenue. Yeah. And your profit margin can still be there. So this concept of soft landing yeah. has now just increased in my models. Right. What was a slow chance of a soft landing is becoming a coin flip in my view. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. It's increasing. Let's go to interest rates. Yep. This is what's, what was, was interesting is that now the market, prior to the jobs numbers coming out on, on Friday, was pointing towards a rate cut as early as March in the US. Of, of 2024 in the US. Thoughts? Um, I think that's going to be um, the probability that gets priced lower and lower over the coming uh, uh, over the coming weeks. So I think the bond market's probably uh, gotten a little bit too optimistic on that. Thank you. Yeah, my feeling is is that if in fact we're going to have a higher probability of a no landing, mm -hmm. then it likely means that the Fed just has to keep rates where they are. I think that Europe and Canada cut rates before the U.S. does. I agree. Yeah. You said no landing. Did you mean no landing or did you mean soft landing? Yeah, I, it's it's a no landing or soft landing, but it's not a recession, not even a mild, something other than a mild recession. Okay, now here's what I'm predicting for 2024. Okay. Now they're going to have the conversation of no landing versus soft landing. Right. If recession has been somewhat diminished in high, in high probability, greater than 40%. Yeah. And that could be a possibility. Yeah. Then they're going to talk about no landing versus soft landing because right. a landing is still a landing. Yep. And that does have impact. Right. No landing doesn't it's have going. an impact. Yep. I'm not in that camp. Right. I'm in the camp of if I, if we had a choice of those three, recession, yep. soft landing, no landing. I don't even consider no landing as a probability greater than 10% right. in my models. Right. And I think the market's missing this. They're getting optimistic in some areas, but in other parts of the market, they've been calling a deep recession. You look at the large corporations that have, have high revenue and good profit margins, they've been bid up like crazy yep. with, the, with the thought process that they're gonna weather the storm. But if you look at the smaller mid-sized corporations in the United States, a lot of them have been priced for a deep recession. Yeah. A deep recession. That's right. So when the optimism kicks in, that's where they're gonna look at. Because there'll, there'll be good value there. Regional banks in the United States are priced for a deep recession. Yeah. They might move to recession shortly, and they might be priced for maybe a soft landing. Yeah. 
that's a big jump in opportunity there. Right. So you're going to feel like there's going to be more greed out there. Right. More the sentiment have, of increase out you there. No, no, agreed. Uh, agreed. And the, and the, but the market's not going to get what it wants next week by the Fed. The Fed has no choice, like the Bank of Canada, but to continue to keep further interest rate hikes on the table. It is quite likely that they are going to guide towards only two cuts versus what, you know, five that are being priced in. They've got to make sure that the inflation, that, that, that them getting inflation under control happens. The, the, the number one fear that they would have is a resurgence in inflation. 100%. So we'll see how the market responds to that next week. And it's week. not only the resurgence of inflation, <clears throat> it's integrity. Right. Can we trust the Fed to do what they say they're going to do? Right. Because the next time we have a problem, will they be able to fix it? Right. And, and yeah. And so they, I do not 100%. believe, and I, I'm in the same camp as you, that the Federal Reserve will be saying, we are done, we're going to start cutting. Not yet. Not yet. No. Be careful what you ask for. Right. If you're asking for the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve, to start cutting rates, you're basically saying your economy needs stimulus. Right. And why would an economy that needs stimulus is when it's actually slowing down that it actually creates a potential recession, yep. if not a recession. That's right. So we have to be very careful what we ask for. Hey, so we know that the trend, um, and we just look at our own parent situation, people want to age in their home as long as they possibly can. It's the, they're comfortable, they've got all their surroundings, the sentimental value, all of those reasons. And it sure seems like the empirical evidence is also pointing to that. So been, I've been working with people transitioning to or living in retirement for now 25 years. And I can tell you in the first, call it five to seven years of my career, the concept of downsizing, I'm going to sell my house, mm. move into a condo, or I'm going to rent into an apartment was a big trend or a thought process for planning purposes as people go through retirement. Right. That was part of their plans. Fast forward now, the last, call it 10 years, you're not catching that as much. I, they don't downsize, they right-size, which mm. doesn't necessarily mean they're getting into a cheaper property. That's true. They're just getting into a property that fits them. And that's a small percentage of the, of the larger population, anecdotally, of our clients. I'd say the large portion of our clients want to age in place. Agreed. And that changes how, how you, know, you look at the housing market and you look at planning perspective. And it actually got so much attention that the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation also got involved and started putting a report out there. We read the report. We want to have their take on this. Yep. And that's why we have uh, Taylor Party, Housing Analyst for Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Taylor, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Okay. Give us the overview of the report. Uh, you found that, that seniors are choosing to age at home. What is driving this trend? Um, ultimately, you know, if you look at... Um, you know, as people age right now, uh, you know, people are generally living longer, uh, healthier lives uh, than previously, um, you know, which could reduce the need for things like uh, downsizing to lessen the burden of maintenance, uh, for example, at least right away is what we found. Um, you know, generally households uh, have in, in recent, more recent cohorts have more money than their predecessors uh, and they're less likely to have to sell their property to provide for themselves uh, in old age, for example. Um, and in general, homeowners have a wider range of uh, housing types to choose, choose from, including, including condominiums than before, particularly in urban centers. But, you know, ultimately what we found is that with the, 
um, first cohort of the baby boomers, um, sort of born in 1947. Uh, we haven't seen a big push uh, towards uh, condos yet. We haven't seen a big push towards uh, rental yet. Um, and downsizing, we have seen some of that, um, especially for, um, you know, three plus bedroom uh, homes kind of thing people deciding they don't need that much uh, space particularly four plus bedroom homes actually people decide um you know as they get into their 50s or 60s kind of thing they don't need that much space anymore so they uh, as you were saying right size um but you know the the overall uh, gist of this report uh, basically shows that relative to past generations um you know we haven't really seen this big uptick in uh you know downsizing uh, as of yet. That's not to say it won't happen, though. Um, basically, we found that um, downsizing um, or even right-sizing, uh, for example, doesn't really start to happen until you get more advanced um, in age. At least that's what happened with past uh, cohorts. It's really when you get into the 75-plus uh, range, particular, and particularly when you get into your um, 80s, that's when the probability of uh, changing your housing situation really starts to uh, increase. Um, and, you know, that's just perhaps a function of uh, getting older kind of thing. But as I said, with the current um, first cohort of the baby boomer generation, we haven't really seen this uh, happening yet. However, uh, we know that this is a cohort that's going to get into that 75 plus range late 2020s early 2030s and so between 2030 and 2040 you know the the um calculus might change a little bit but for now you know we're not really seeing that taylor do, do, do you see a shift happening with every demographic and let me kind of give you my context behind this when i was 18 or 17 let's start there the magic number of 18 means you move out of the house and go start your own life fast forward now 18 year olds are like, I'm staying at home probably forever and I'm going to live in my parents' house and I'm going to be a burden to them for however long I can be, right? Okay, I'm joking about the burden part, but the key thing is that they're staying longer at home. They're getting married later in their, in their lives. They're having children later in life. So the calendar or time frame has shifted by about seven to eight years. Are we seeing a similar trend happening at the other end of the spectrum when people start to downsize, right size? That shift is about seven or eight years as well. So everything moves over by that time frame, or is it something different than that that's causing what used to be the 65, 70 year old now being the 80 year old uh, uh, moving into a into a condominium rental or or right sizing their home? Uh, yeah. So I mean, that kind of touches on. Um you know, current market conditions, you know, we know we have a, a supply side problem in many cities uh, across Canada right now. And, um, you know, as a result, affordability has been um, a little bit more strained uh, in that respect. Um, but what it means is that, especially on the supply side, is that, you know, if you are, um, you know, currently, you know, aging in place uh, and you're looking around and saying, what are my, what are my options right now? Um, you may not have as as many options. And so current market conditions may also just be contributing to people sort of staying in place, even though they may want to, um, say, downsize or right size uh, kind of thing. In many cities across Canada with the markets, uh, you know, being as tight as they've been over the past uh, few years, the idea of, uh, you know, purchasing is all can also be a stressful thing, right? If you're going into a market where 
um, you know, you may be able to sell very quickly because the market is moving fast, but you're also going into a situation potentially where you're uh, having to fight to find a unit that and get into a unit that, uh, you know, meets your needs essentially. Um, so yeah, I think the market conditions factor into it. I think the, the, um, affordability conditions factor into it. Um, and people, you know, younger people staying at home longer is also, you know, factoring into it as well. Like you said, um, you know, you still need more space, uh, um, if you still have a child at home, essentially. So let's talk about your, your earlier comment of the senior Canadian uh, at around 80 years of age will be that that point inflection point of when they start to downsize right size move into a condo rent what have you do you do you feel with that kind of projection given the percentage of the population in 20 and and, uh, 2030 2040 will be a certain larger percent than before at that age cohort that more supply will happen at that point so the glut of of supply is a short term call it 15 years or is it is it uh is it going to be like the same kind of issue going forward because we're going to see some supply come out because this demographic is going to be going into rentals we have to fill that need that's one problem but that also opens up a whole bunch of homes uh, in the market of that demographic because they're selling anyway. So does this help the problem, hurt the problem? Uh, and, and how do we fix it if it is still a problem? Um, so this is where it gets into, um, you know, an area where we don't, uh, you know, I don't have anything definitive uh, to say about what might happen between 2030 and 2040 kind of thing. And based on, you know, past periods of time, for example, once, um, you know, between 2016 and 2021, as people went from, um, you know, say 85 to 89 years uh, kind of thing, um, you know, the probability uh, or essentially the number of people selling their home during that five-year period in that age cohort was over 50%. Um, and, you know, take one step below that 80 to 84 years, um, you know, it was a little over a third of people were choosing uh, to sell their homes. And so, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that I... You know, as we get into the, the next decade, um, and as these more, uh, as people in the uh, baby boomer cohort, particularly the first cohort, start to get into more advanced age, you know, we could see more supply coming to the market. But uh, we'll, all we have right now is sort of our projections for what we need out to um, our longer-term projections, what we need out to 2030, and we know that we have a, a significant supply gap. We have major labor market needs that we need to fill. Um, and we need to be able to accommodate um, everybody coming to Canada as well. And so um, there is a very large supply gap. Whether this starts to resolve uh, and when it starts to resolve is 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 a very big question for sure. And that's why we got to bring him back yep. on the show to talk about this and see all the trends continuing in the upcoming years as well. Taylor, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Faisal, we're going to be joined by uh, Laura Tamblin, who... Um, Laura Tamblin Watts, excuse me. She's the CEO of CanAge. Now, Deloitte came out with a report recently that talked about um, 14% of Canadian retirees um, may not be able to expect the comfortable retirement lifestyle that they wanted. And it's what's interesting about the report, and if we go through all the Canadians that we speak to throughout a, an average year, 
The concern that I have is not for the people who make a certain amount of income where most of their income is replaced with Canadian pension plan, old age security, and government income supplement right. or GIS. I'm not as concerned because that's the, that's pretty close to that lifestyle that they were leading as they were going through their career. Correct. Correct. When you start going up the income level, when you start making six figures plus, when you start saving money or you're maximizing your RSPs, if you do maximize your RSPs, right. the risk becomes that you cannot maintain the lifestyle that you were living while you were working in retirement. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to have more understanding about what is going on there so we can explain that to our listeners and viewers. And that's why we've got Laura Tamlin Watt, CEO of CanAge. Laura, makes sense for all of, to us for all of the stuff that we just talked about. The demographic who's making more income that cannot be covered by CPP, old age security. They won't qualify most likely for GIS. But if you're, but if you're at that level and you're, you're not able to reach your, your lifestyle goals, what's happening there? What we're seeing is the accumulation of about the last 20 years now kind of come into a pinch point. So with interest rates being so low, people didn't make a lot of money, but it was really cheap to get debt. So what we saw is people were using debt because it essentially had almost a 0% interest rate for many years. And what has happened is we've got the most indebted generation we've ever had. So when we think about older people, it's important to remember we need to parse those out. So the, the silent generation and the greatest generation, those were the savers, very little debt. Remember, it was hard to get debt back then as well. So they, they kept their money. And that's often what we think about as older people. But actually, when we're thinking about boomers who are turning 85 by 2030, and for the Gen Xers, like myself, who start turning 65 by 2030, that's not been the circumstance. Now we're having a sharp spike, interest rates going up and the consumer price index also being a real challenge. Folks who thought that they were doing well and being able to manage their debt very effectively all of a sudden can't afford it. And this is layered on with the reduction of private pensions. So we know that the CPP and the GIS is not going to keep anyone in a comfortable retirement. But we always design that three-legged stool, as we call it, with your own savings, which are now we are hearing under a real crunch. We're having the government, which is really just a support for most people. You're not really supposed to have to live on it. And this idea that you would have an employer to help you with your pensions. And that is just not the reality for most people. The three-legged stool has now turned into a two-legged stool, so it has some instability there. Dave and I, prior to uh, the, the break, uh, during the break, we're talking about this, and we kind of had a banter going back and forth. I'd like to bring you in on this banter. Let's go the assumption of the generation prior. So they were on a defined benefit pension plan. They had fixed income. That's where the whole retirees are on fixed income has come from fast forward to this generation the boomer generation they're not on a fixed income because they've used they've been able to save themselves uh, for, or they wish to save money for themselves because they've had minimal amount of exposure to the defined uh, benefit pension plans from their employer that's been reduced okay what we find and what we had a nice banter on is that the average canadian will still dip into their savings above and beyond 
what they're able to support themselves throughout their retirement because they want the stuff now and don't plan for it over time. This is the debate that we were having. Yep. So I asked Dave, <clears throat> and, and Dave, I want you to answer this so that, that yep. people can hear this. If we took everybody's savings and put it into a guaranteed income product, yep. an annuity, yep. a defined pension plan, whatever you want to call it, and they received a fixed payment, I said then the consumer behavior would shift. You said no. What I, do you think they would do? Yeah, what I think that this generation, the baby boom generation would do, given the fact that they've invented financing, right? We have, we have accommodated, the, the way we operate today is, is as a result of what their consumer behavior is. As you said, I want to pull forward the things I want today and I'll pay for them over time to tomorrow. I think that they would finance their homes in order to increase their life. And, and Laura, this is what you're talking about, right? Ultimately, they become the most indebted population or cohort, I guess, right? It is exactly right. One of the pieces I think that's really, again, that crunch that we haven't seen before is that the boomers who remember well that 18, 19% rate on mortgage, remember you're making a lot of money on your savings, but of course, borrowing was very high, right? So there was that sense that things were going to earn. And then they reduced dramatically. So home ownership really increased. And that became the idea that you'd have your nest egg in your house, right? And you're able to get a bigger house because the interest rates are very low. You may be able to renovate and pull some money out of your house because interest rates are really low. Maybe you want to fund travel or have some other type of lifestyle well-being. You're able to pull that money out of your house because interest rates are really low. But what's happened is now interest rates are going up. The equity is reduced. And then people say, well, you know what? You are house rich and cash poor. Actually, no. You're actually not house rich anymore. What you have is an asset with a lot of equity pulled out that you cannot afford any longer. Well, sell the house and move into some type of downsizing, move into a different place. That is actually no longer easy because the age at which people are doing that now makes rental apartments often more expensive and quite inappropriate in terms of being age friendly. So you can't get a rental apartment for the price that you're getting your house at and you don't get those tax breaks for things like property taxes and others if you're renting. Renting costs more than mortgaging and mostly you're going to need to move out of your community to find something. That means you're going to lose your social relationships your faith community means you're going to not be able to see your neighbors and friends. That social isolation isn't just a financial challenge. It's a challenge for transportation and well-being. And it's so this idea that boomers can just sell their houses and move into something cheaper is just not real. Yeah. And that's that's the problem that we, that we have in front of us. There's a solution to that. And we're going to talk about part of that solution. Uh, Laura, when you look at uh, two pieces of advice you would give this demographic going through this type of problem, what are the two pieces of advice you'd give them? Start thinking more creatively and really figure out what's important to you, right? Don't just assume that you have to have the house and you have to have the travel and you have to have an ability to support your children. Really sit down and try to map out what you care about. You may actually want to sell the house and move somewhere else anyway, as opposed to having to. It's a very different narrative, right? Figure out what the cost of care is going to be. So plan preventatively and be pleased 
otherwise. One slip and fall, you've all broken a bone or hurt a knee or twisted an ankle, okay? One broken bone, one hip that goes can fundamentally change your life. In fact, if you fall and break a hip, your chances of dying within 18 months is 40% and your chances of disability if you survive is about 80%. So we have to reality have to do a bit of a reality check here. You may not be well. Let's think about what you need and what aging in place is going to mean and then build your finance around that. And that's a great segue of why we've built the four buckets, exactly. asset dedication. It's not just about living today. It's about the concerns about tomorrow, like healthcare and so forth. That's why we have the four buckets. Laura, I want to thank you uh, for, for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Uh, we've had a strong November. We've actually had a pretty decent start uh, to December. Uh, markets are moving higher. Inflation seems to be coming down. Faisal, is it time? to get back and get greedy. Well, it's interesting to see the amount of retail money going back into the market. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say retail, I'm not speaking of, of um, any institutional money manager, pension plans. Right, the average fund, Joe advisor the on average, the uh, yep. uh, Average Canadian or average American, yep. and especially <clears throat> at discount brokerage uh, shops, yep. they kind of they track all this. They're getting back into the market right. and they're buying heavily, which is very interesting to see when you look at retail. You look at institutional, not as much of a jump in there. And institutional tends not to be quite as emotionally reactive as retail. And that's time. a great point. Is this an emotional reaction mm. or is it actual time to start getting greedy? Right. And that is uh, uh, and that is the debate. Listen, um, you know, you and I did a presentation, uh, oh, what, in the last couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago, yep. and we to our clients, yeah, yeah, and we talked a little bit about uh, the whole market timing issue and so on and so forth versus strategy. Okay, and um, you know, if you're watching inflation, it's trending lower. If you're watching the employment numbers, okay, particularly in the United States, they remain pretty robust. People are working. If they're working and their wages have gone up, which we've seen over the past 18 to 24 months, they're going to continue to spend. That means good stuff for the economy, doesn't it? <laughs> I was going to ask you, does it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go with the understanding of what people are doing. Some, some people put money in the market to invest for the hopes of growth in the future without knowing what they're investing in. Mm -hmm. Others actually invest in the market knowing the constituents that they own, the holdings that they have. So when you're investing into the market, you better know what you're investing in. So if we take that, that, that as a starting point and you look at where the economy is, mm -hmm. generally speaking, the growth of the economy equals the growth of a company. In general terms, yeah. some will be higher, some will be lower. Okay. That's where you get analysis and right. you have to look at the company and how it's doing and right. be more, more uh, value-driven that way. But if the growth of the economy equals the growth of the company, then are we suggesting that the growth of the economy is going to increase? Or is the growth of the economy slowing down? Well, the central banks want to see it slow, don't they? And, and I think they're getting their way, are they not? And therefore, what will happen? 
well, would imply the average of the companies would be slowing. So if we have that as a premise, why are we seeing retail money jumping into the market now? Right. And where's it going? Right. Right. Where's it going? And that's the interesting part. So I'm not saying we are going into a deep recession. Right. But I'm not saying that the economy is going to continue to grow at four, five, six percent throughout the world. Right. Not happening. Right. In fact, the numbers are going down. We're talking soft landing. We're talking land, no landing. Or mild recession. Mild recession or deep recession. Yeah. All these different. Nowhere does it say better growth. Right. Things are so, accelerating. So the only way you really make consistent profits as a company is if the growth of the company continues to happen. Mm -hmm. Remember my formula, growth of the economy equals the growth of a company right. on average. Right. Okay, so if you're going to have that as your biggest headwind, why are people getting greedy? Right. Why are people jumping into the market without understanding what they're buying? Right. Fear of missing out. And that's where, you know, I get I get worried for the average investor, right? The average saver, because I want to define those two different types of people who yes. are actually involved in the market, and those are just putting money to save right. for a higher growth of capital in the future. That's a different there there needs to be some better strategy around just buying into the market. So things it, will go up over time. Right. It's gonna be not as linear as me just saying things are going to be better over time. Think about the timing on all of this. It's fascinating when you think the, through the, the behavioral psychology of this. It was in uh, late October. I mean, things got really choppy there. Yeah. Uh, the August, September, October period. And so as October wore on and it, you know, the markets were effectively wiping out everything they had built in the first half of the year, um, the conversation was we got to get out. And we're only, what, six, six weeks, weeks later? Yep. And now it's, oh, my God, i got to get back in, right? And if, if you're one of those people, you, you have to think about that, right? Those, those are the short-term emotional decisions that we tend to get drawn into instead of, as you said, having a proper strategy and a discipline uh, based on certain goals, objectives, and, and timelines that you've got. When you start to have fear, then greed, then fear, then greed, or the word FOMO, fear of missing out, yeah. Um, come into play, you don't necessarily take a major impact to your retirement in the next three to five years. Right. You won't see it. You'll be able to spend what you're spending, generally speaking. That's right. The impact happens after five years. Yeah. Longer, day, longer term. Yep. And so when you start to review the numbers five years out and you go, I haven't made any money right. or I've been drawing on my principal right. or what's going on here? Because you, you, you've you mortgaged your future returns based on today's emotion. Right. I'm going to say that again. You're mortgaging your future return on today's emotion. That is what starts the trend that we have the biggest fear in. Right. People living to 90, running out of money at 80. Right. That's my definition of high risk. Yep. So having proper structure... Having, having the discipline around that structure will lead to the results that you're trying to reach over the long term yep. without mortgaging the future. Yeah. And the last six weeks has been a great example of that, separating as an example, 
your need for income, uh-huh. right? And predictability and consistency in that, that cash flow versus the volatility of what longer term growth assets can do and in just he, six weeks. Uh, there was an individual who made a, uh, who made a comment on one of our posts on, on Facebook mm. and said, I've been living off of dividends. Everything's great. Yep. And so I replied, what happens if you need more than the dividend that you get, that you're receiving, right? I'll just sell my shares. Huh? Interesting. And you're going to sell your shares when they're down or when they're up or the minute you sell your shares, you know, you're going to receive less dividends. I I didn't go back and forth on this as a debate with the individual. I just wanted to trigger to say, hmm, what's the plan? Right. It's it's like they forget about stocks and bonds. Use a house, right? You've got a house that produces income for you. If that income is no longer enough and you need more and you sell the house, Where's the income come from? And and this goes to part of our show today. If you are on a certain dividend income, you're now on fixed income. Right. You're now on a certain amount of money you have to live on. You can't go above and beyond that unless you borrow money. If you don't want to touch your portfolio. Right. If you touch your portfolio, you'd have less income. And that's that spiral effect that can happen year over year. Five years over every five years. That's right. And it's mortgaging your future for the emotions of today. Yeah. And listen, lots of people do that. We love dividends. We don't think of them as part of the, the income story. We think of it as part of the total return story for Correct. long-term growth assets. Um, um, so we structure things a little bit different because we don't want to ever be in that position where you get an unexpected cost, where you have to sell your income-producing assets, which forever in the future okay, affects that cash flow. And we're going to talk about this at our upcoming seminar, how to profit and protect and to make sure your your retirement is fully funded for your entire life on Tuesday, January 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Country Hills Golf Club. You do need to register for this, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com. On behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, thanks for tuning in for another edition of More Than Money. You're on QR Calgary. We look forward to speaking with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.